HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery. Proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Mike Floriak writes about food and food people for the Boston Globe. Mike tells his story, Dinners with Nana, 25 years of a love-hate relationship with food. His story was recorded in front of a live audience at City Winery in Boston in February of 2020. Let's have a listen. I actually never thought that my mother-in-law loved food. I wasn't sure that she actually even liked food. It just seemed that food was one of a long list of things that Mary found disappointing. Like um, (laughs) the people she would find at Walmart and my wife's haircuts. And it didn't matter which one, they were all kind of disappointing. And I think the fact that her children were Americans and they weren't British like her and they didn't find tennis marvelous and the royal family marvelous. But it was kind of fascinating to meet someone who really didn't seem to like food. I grew up in an Italian-American family where everyone was making food or eating food or talking about making food and eating food. And for for Mary, food always seemed to be kind of fuel. It was just the thing that, that was there to get you from point A to point B. Once Mary gave me her recipe for pork tenderloin. We were sitting around after dinner one night, and she was telling me how she likes to make pork tenderloin. You go to Trader Joe's and you get a pork tenderloin and then you microwave it. (laughs) And then generally there would be a lot of salt on top of that. A snack that she liked to have was something called a chip butty, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a sandwich of white bread, usually toasted, I think she would make. No, no, non-toasted, I'm getting confirmation of this, with leftover French fries in it. So you would stack that together and, and shake salt on it. But that was something she grew up, and butter, butter as well. 
No, but that was something that she grew up eating in England. She was born in Preston, England in 1917. And I always thought that, you know, the fact that she was born in World War One in, in England and grew up during the Depression and came of age uh, during World War II kind of explained a little bit of this fact that food wasn't so important to her. Northern England wasn't exactly a culinary hotbed in, in the first part of the 20th century. She didn't love food, but I loved her daughter and I loved my daughters who were part of the family. And, and at home, I'm the person who takes care of food, either cooking food or planning for going out for food. And when Mary would come to visit over the course of about 25 years, I was always responsible for doing one of those two things. I would make dinner or I would plan for our dinners out. And to this day, I always get mildly nauseated when I have to pick a restaurant for a group of people because it was always kind of a struggle to figure out this formula of what was going to make Mary happy because you could pick a restaurant and it might be kind of too common. Oh, I don't like the looks of these people. I don't like the looks of this food. But you could pick somewhere that was too fancy and then the people who were fancy and who were there were going to be looking at us like we were too common. And so there was this kind of tricky formula to try, try to figure that out. And over the years, we found some things that worked. Later, she moved up here and lived near us when she was in her 90s. And one thing I should mention about Mary is that she was a very full-of-life person. She was someone who drove an ambulance during World War II. She was a very glamorous woman who, when she was in her 90s and lived in assisted living here in Cambridge, an older gentleman who was sitting at the Christmas party with me told me that he had worked in the fashion industry and thought Mary should be walking the Paris runway at 95. She never went out of the house without looking her best and always had kind of high standards for, for things and was kind of a force of nature in addition to being kind of difficult at times. Um, but so she was, when she lived here, you know, things became a little more difficult. She was getting older. It was kind of hard to find this balance of what exactly was going to make her happy with food. And the places that worked didn't always work anymore. There was a time we took her to the uh, Mandarin Oriental hotel for Christmas Eve dinner and it was kind of a big deal. One of her fancy friends went there often for cocktails with her daughter and so she was really looking forward to this. And we walked into the restaurant and it was kind of a French bistro and we walk in, it's Christmas Eve and it's filled with kind of old Yankees who are in their Christmas finery which really isn't so fine and then it was filled with tourists who were kind of like the people from Walmart with Christmas sweaters on. So there was a lot of things about that that wasn't going so well. And there, it was bistro style, so there's brown paper on the tables. And her first comment was that, well, it's a good thing that my husband isn't still alive because he would have walked out the door over that, that you don't, you don't have paper on a table, especially in a place like the Mandarin Oriental. And so that was kind of indicative of, a, of what dinner often could be like with her. The good news is my daughters, who were among the few people in the world who could get a, a good laugh out of her, with a couple whiskey sours and my daughters working on her, she was able to kind of step outside of herself and enjoy that dinner. But it became, as she was moving into her late 90s, although she was active and very sort of on top of things, it became harder and harder to make her happy with food. And, uh, you know, as I said, it was always kind of a... a an interesting thing to me, the fact that this was a person who didn't seem to like food. And I think it was on her last birthday, my wife and I took her to Legal Harborside, which Legal Seafood was one of her places that she loved. And my wife called ahead and told them it was a birthday and they treated us really well. 
and they made plans to take care of her and we ordered one of her favorite things which was a shrimp cocktail but the shrimp cocktail came in this giant ice globe and it was a shrimp that was about the size of a potato in this and it was just confusing and wrong and she didn't find it comfortable and lovely everything about it was kind of not not so good so dinner was over my wife was upstairs paying and i was sitting down in the first level with her and she started talking and she was telling me about a dinner that she'd had with her husband my wife's father who was an american officer who she'd met during world war 2 and he was very gentlemanly and very sophisticated and very much unlike the other americans she met and 60 odd years ago they had been out to dinner in cincinnati and they had gone to a fancy french restaurant and the the waiters had tuxedos on and white clouds over their arms and there were people playing violins and she described the restaurant and she described the food and it was fancy french food and you know she went back to that and she was very happy very happy in a way that she wasn't a lot when when we were with her and that's when i realized that you know i had always thought that food wasn't something that brought her a lot of joy that it wasn't her way of connecting with people and i think then i realized it was that actually food did bring her that joy and she was connecting but it was connecting to a past. You know, it was like she was 96 years old and the world didn't make that much sense to her anymore. You know, they had brown paper at the Mandarin Oriental and shrimp cocktails were this big and it didn't make sense. But that that time with her husband and the times growing up in England, that all made sense. And that was kind of the world that she was connecting back to and she did have these fond memories. but we were never going to be able to recreate that that was something that was way in the past a few months after that she actually passed away and later later this year my wife and i and her sister are going to be going back to england and i'm going to go back and see the small town where she was born and the family cemetery where she's buried now and one of the things i really want to do is to go and try and find myself a a proper chip butty and try to sit down and enjoy that and and try to understand and enjoy the world that she loved and enjoyed. Thanks. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart. because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. that when you love what you do this much that the best is always still to come well as it turns out i have a few food stories of my own here's one that i recorded in november of 2019 at wbur city space in boston i hope you like it let's have a listen I used to tell people that I grew up in the only non-food focused Jewish family in America. <laughs> that it's not a joke until I read Ruth Rachel's book and I realized that there were at least two of us. It was 
We used to tell everybody who had ever come to visit my mother's house, don't eat anything. <laughs> don't eat the cottage cheese with the blue scooped out of it. Don't eat the tomato paste because it probably is still left over from the depression when my grandfather shipped her a case. Don't, don't eat anything there. So my mother really didn't care about food. And if she could have fed us Special K and chicken pot pies from her favorite Jewish butcher, that would have been just fine. Thankfully, we did have um, a housekeeper who actually made sure there was real food on the table. But I had to wait until I was an adult to learn that lamb was not a gray meat. I was kind of shocked when I learned that. Uh, but my mom really didn't care about food. She was very, very busy and serious. She spent a lot of time listening to the radio. This is during the Fulbright hearing. She was an early China watcher. And occasionally when I'd be in the little school bus coming home from school, I would hear my mother calling into the talk radio stations. And I wanted to die. But that's who my mother was. You know, she was really too serious, too, you know, really food. Who cares about food? You know, whatever. Food is what you eat. She ate the same breakfast every day my whole life, cottage cheese and rye crisp, black coffee and orange juice. That was it. And my mother didn't really believe in what we eat, but she cared very much about how we ate. So the table at our house in Boston was beautiful. The china was beautiful. We had the water came out of these wonderful pewter pitchers. We never, ever would ever put a container on the table. That would have been, I don't know, God would strike us down, I think, if, if that happened. Not even a butter stick that was wrapped, nothing. When we were growing up, there were three of us. My brother was the oldest, my sister was in the middle, and I was the baby. And it was kind of a formal yet boisterous affair to have dinner at the Kasdan household. My dad was an obstetrician and a gynecologist in private practice, so he often wouldn't be there through the whole meal. Somebody was always having a baby. I mean, I learned how to ask people about their contractions when I was about eight. <laughs> so, um, but my brother, we were a very current events focused family, and my brother would run these current events quizzes for us at dinner. And he would say, okay, you know, who's the Secretary of Commerce? Okay, you know, what's the capital of Iowa? And my sister just didn't buy into that, but my mother really did. And once he asked my sister, okay, I'll give you an easy one. Who's the Vice President of the United States? And she said, I don't know. Schlucky? Which was not true. It was Richard Nixon. That was the, <laughs> that was the spoiler. And my mother, she, she thought it was fun. She held court, and we held our own. So, of course, despite her, I got really interested in food. <laughs> and I started watching this woman on TV, Julia Child, and I'd say, hey, Mom, come in and watch. There's this woman who could teach you how to cook. <laughs> Which she didn't take kindly. Um, but anyhow, I learned quite a bit. I learned that there was all this stuff that you could, like, cook. And then I got to college, and my then-boyfriend, um, his roommate was building a restaurant. It was called The Peasant Stock. And Mike was always hammering and doing all this other stuff. And I was holding the flashlight so that he could see where he was hammering. And I watched Jerry in the kitchen, who was a very good chef. And he'd be, like, mixing up all this stuff. And I would say, what are you doing? He had this big glass, five-gallon jug, and he said, I'm making salad dressing. And I said, stop. You can make salad dressing? You know, you know, like, who could do this kind of stuff? So anyhow, I learned from Jerry, and I became a pretty good cook, and I ended up being the person 
whose house people wanted to come to for dinner. And later on in my life, I married um, my second husband, who was really into food. And he was really a good cook. And he was really into good cooks. And it was just a joy, joy to learn about the professional side of the food business. And my mother kept thinking that this was ridiculous. <laughs> and ultimately, my husband decided that what we needed in our lives was to open a restaurant. So we opened not one restaurant, not two, but three. And suddenly, we were in the restaurant business. That had not been my plan. I trained as an economist, not as a sous chef. But here we were, we had all these restaurants, and my mother would sort of poo-poo it, but she ended up really, really liking the restaurant ambiance. So she would come into our restaurant, and she'd be the hostess. She was like 80 years old. And she would like, you know, take people to their tables, and she really liked doing that, and she was kind of super fun. And she sort of got into that part of it. And then I decided the restaurant business was too much for me. I would rather write about the food business, which I did. And I did that very happily and successfully for a lot of years. I wrote about 400 million profiles of chefs in restaurants, and that was really fun. And I became more and more interested in food. And my mother would say, oh, you're such a good writer. Why don't you write about something important? <laughs> you know, why don't you write about, like, civil rights or you know, like famine in China, if you're going to write about it. Just write about something important. And this went on a bit. Um, and every year, my mother and I would hit our high point of difficulty around Thanksgiving. Because she had this big, beautiful house by the sea, where we now live. And the entire family would come to this big, beautiful house by the sea. And every year, she would say to me, oh, I could get it all catered by Costco. <laughs> And I would say, no, I don't want you to get it catered by Costco. Well, I'll make the food in Cambridge. Partly I did it so that she would not stuff the turkey on Wednesday afternoon. Because she didn't believe all that bullshit about salmonella, you know. She was really pretty much like that. So I would make all of this food, and I would sort of complain to everybody in my family about, poor me, you know, I have to make all this food and schlep it in, and, and all these hotel trays, and all these, like, fish tubs and stuff like that, because there were always, like, 40 of us for Thanksgiving. And I would get there, we would only stuff the turkey in the morning before we put it in the oven. I was like, uh, you know, and... You know, every year we would have the same conversation. Oh, it's so much work for you. I'll just get it catered. And I'd say, no, it's a cooking holiday. I like to cook. Everybody else likes to cook. They like to bring dishes. And it only occurred to me after she died, which was now five years ago, at the ripe old age of 96 and in full control of her faculties and her food intake, that I had missed the whole point. I was really focused on the food. And my mother was focused on the people who ate the food. And the idea that this whole family came together every year, regardless of the food, regardless of whether we had chicken pot pie or a special K, nobody cared. And now that I've had the opportunity to move into her house and in my own small way move into her life, and we still have Thanksgiving, and I think, what a remarkable gift she taught me. It's not about the food. You know, if you can possibly make it great, let it be great. But what really matters is that people want to come. And that's what food does. Food brings us together. And I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. 
You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 